Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be there this morning. Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11. And uh, if you came in after the announcements, uh, let me just remind you again, in case you already aren't remembering this, that uh, next week starts spring break. So we won't be meeting next Sunday in here. If you happen to be in town, if you're working or whatever, uh, the main services will still be going on at both campuses, 9.15 and 11 a.m. So you're welcome to go to those. We'll start up again on the 18th, but on the 18th, we'll just be at 6 o'clock since some of you will still be coming in from out of town. So on the 18th, we'll have 6 p.m., and then on the 25th of March, we'll start back up with our regular schedule at 11 and 6. So we look forward to seeing you guys there. Hope you have a good, uh, enjoyable, safe, productive spring break, and we will see you uh, when you come back. All right, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you because in Jesus Christ we have eternal life, and we also have abundant life now. And yet, Father, we often don't recognize or remember that our righteousness, our approval before you is found in Jesus Christ alone. So, Father, I pray that you would, as we just sang, teach us not to boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, nothing but Jesus Christ. And I pray that in him we would stand, knowing that we are fully righteous because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, and that our works of righteousness would not be done to earn your favor, but they would be done as a loving response to the Spirit of God within us. Lord, as we study your word, I pray help us to understand it, uh, move in our minds that we would know what it says. I pray that you would move in our hearts. Lord, many of us have distractions and fears and worries that are uh, weighing us down right now. I pray remove those from us. Help us to believe you and trust you. And then move in our hands and feet that we would obey you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of us are aware that junior high and high school are a time in your life when very few things matter to you more than being accepted, more than being a part of 
the in crowd or the popular crowd or whatever it is. It was no different when I was in junior high and high school, probably from when you guys were. I can remember there was a distinct group at my junior high that was the popular kids. And that may have been the case at your school as well. There were probably 15 to 20 kids out of five or 600 at my junior high that were considered the in group. And so uh, it wasn't uncommon. You would walk into the cafeteria and there were 30 tables in the cafeteria, but all of the kids would try to cram around one table where the popular kids were, right? And so there'd be a thousand chairs pulled up to this table and you'd be jammed in because everybody just wanted to be near these kids, hoping that they might get a little taste of this glory that was at the top of the social strata at uh, Westwood Junior High, where I went to school. And uh, I was no different. I deeply cared about being accepted, fitting in. Uh, and I was not necessarily, uh, I didn't consider myself at the bottom of the social ladder, but I wasn't at the top. And so I did everything to kind of inch my way up there. Uh, I spiked my hair, which at the time was extremely cool. I uh, thought I looked like Val Kilmer or something like that. And so I spiked my hair. I wore uh, jams. Uh, some of you guys may not know what that even is, but uh, jams were a type of shorts that was kind of a Hawaiian short that everybody wore. Uh, we all wore them. Uh, I did a number of things like that. For a while, there was this fad where uh, guys and girls, we would make these little friendship bracelets and actually weave them out of yarn. And so I would spend uh, time at my house weaving friendship bracelets to kind of elevate. My dad was probably like, what is going on with my son here, right? Okay, and I would try to elevate myself, uh, but always had a hard time kind of breaking through to where I wanted to be. I always felt a little bit less than I wanted to be, but I did have one shining moment, and that is when I learned by heart the McDonald's menu song. You guys, again, won't know what this is, but back in the late 80s, there was a commercial that McDonald's did where a guy walks up to a counter and he sings the entire McDonald's menu and orders it. And I still remember the beginning of it. Uh, it went... I'm going to share some of this with you guys. It went uh, Big Mac with DLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a Happy Meal McNuggets, tasty golden french fries, regular or larger sizes, salad, chef or garden, or chicken salad oriental. That's all I remember actually right now. Okay, so I, I memorized, thank you, yeah, thank you. I memorized this whole song and one day at lunch, I started uh, singing it for a friend of mine and all of a sudden, all of the popular kids gathered around my table And they were listening and they were paying attention to what I was doing. And I thought, this is it. This is my shining moment in the sun where I'm going to break through and I will from here on out be at the top. And they listened to what I was saying and singing. And they were like, man, that's really cool. And then they all went back to their table and sat down. And there I was back in the same spot. And I learned an important lesson. And that is that the approval of humanity is fleeting. Uh, It doesn't last very long. And yet all of us, have this deeply ingrained desire to want to be accepted, to know that we are in uh, with other people. But I think ultimately we have that desire that traces to a desire to want to know that we are in and accepted before God. We want to know that the things that we say, the things that we do are okay, that who we are is okay. And so we set up all kinds of standards Uh, Whether it is that you spike your hair, whether it is that you wear certain clothes, whether it is that you're in a certain club. Uh, If you're a Christian, you may set up standards based on uh, how much time you spend praying or reading your Bible or whether you're an officer in the right Christian organization or whatever it is. And we set up these standards to look at ourselves and others and go, yeah, I'm in or he's in or he's out. And that's how we determine it. 
And if you go all the way back, really, to the beginning of time, you'll find people setting up these kinds of standards. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, what you would find, if you were to go back and look at that background, what you would find is the way that a person determined if they were in or out, if they were accepted by God and a part of God's people, or if they were outside, the way you knew that wasn't by necessarily wearing particular clothes or listening to particular music. It was by keeping the law. If you were a Jewish person, you had to keep the law in order to know where you stood before God. Okay, so a a Jewish boy uh, would be circumcised when he was eight days old as his parents' way of saying, we want him to be a child of the covenant, right? Because remember, circumcision was the sign that God gave to Abraham to say that Abraham, through your descendants, through your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I will bless this people, and this, this circumcision is a sign of that. And then throughout your whole life, you would try to obey and keep the law that God had given. To say, I want to be a part of God's covenant people to inherit all of the blessings that God has promised. Life in the land, relationship with God, relationship with others, all of these things. And so if you were a first century Jew, that was how you defined yourself. The challenge came in, th- in this way. When Jesus came on the scene, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again. And now as people began to grapple with what Jesus had done, they realized Jesus is the Messiah. He's taken away the problem of sin. Acceptance before God now comes by identifying myself with Jesus Christ through faith. I believe in what Jesus has done. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law on my behalf. All right, so I believe in what he has done and I have acceptance with God. Now imagine, though, if you're a Jewish person and your whole life you've spent defining in or out by the law. Well, what happens? That could be confusing. And so as Paul's writing the book of Philippians, there are people wandering around in the early church basically saying, yeah, Jesus is great. All right, Jesus is the Messiah, certainly. But you still have to keep the law. And if you don't keep the law, you're out. You're not really accepted. Maybe you're a second-class Christian if you are one at all. And what we're going to find in this passage is Paul saying, no, that's absolutely incorrect. And all throughout the book of Philippians, as we've been following along, Paul's main point in this book is to urge and challenge these people that there is nothing worth investing your life in, nothing worth living for more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's because we are in Jesus Christ that we know we have eternal life. It's because we're in Jesus Christ that we have forgiveness and reconciliation before God and that we have something to offer the world. And so Paul's been making this argument and yet these people are tempted by this this group that's coming in saying, now, you also got to obey the law or we're not going to sit with you at the lunch table, very literally. You can't be part of our club. And Paul says, no, it's quite the contrary. True covenant blessing and relationship with God comes only through Jesus Christ. And if you try to earn your way to favor before God by keeping the law, you've missed it. And now as we go around about this, you may be thinking, what does all this have to do with me, right? I'm in the year 2012. I'm not trying to keep the law. What does all this have to do with me? The bottom line is this. As we go through this passage, I want you to think about this. On a day-to-day basis, How do you determine if you feel okay before God? How do you determine if you have that sense of God loves me, God accepts me, God knows me? What is it for you? Because if I'm honest, it varies often from day to day, depending on 
what I think or do or say, right? Maybe it varies from day to day depending on how other people view me. And you may say, yeah, if I didn't spend time in the word of God today, maybe he loves me a little bit less, right? Maybe I need to pick up the slack tomorrow so that I can get back into his good graces. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Paul's going to say, no, acceptance before God comes only, only through what Jesus Christ has done. Now, we'll talk about then what is the role of works in the Christian life? Should we just then go do whatever we want to do? Paul's going to answer no to that question, but he's going to say acceptance before God, knowing that you're in, knowing that you're a part of his people, comes only through identification with Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look again at Philippians chapter 3 in a little bit more detail. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1, begins by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. All right, so first he begins with this command that he's gone through over and over in the book, and that is rejoice in the Lord. In other words, he's saying the main thing that we rejoice in, that we find significance and meaning and peace and happiness in, is in Jesus Christ. So don't take your eyes off Jesus. And he says, I've talked to you about this before, but I'm going to write it again because it's, it's no trouble for me to write it again. And it will safeguard you. What he's saying is this. If you want real acceptance, it's found in taking joy in what Jesus Christ has done. And there's a settled assurance despite circumstances. Remember, the approval of mankind is fickle. All right, on a small scale, think about it this way. There is a qualitative difference in the approval that I may get from a group of people who don't know me and have never met me, whether it's people in my classes, kids in junior high, people that don't know me, maybe know who I am. There's a qualitative difference in that level of approval, which may vary based on how well I do one thing or the other, based on what I look like, based on what I say. There's a qualitative difference between that and, for example, the love that I know my parents have for me. My parents will love me, hopefully, no matter what I do or think or say. There's this settled security. Take that to the next level. There's a settled security and joy in the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And what Paul says is take joy in that. And then he says, watch out, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times he uses the same word, look out, look out, look out. And he uses three words that refer to these Jewish opponents. All right, the dogs. Uh, Back in the day of Paul, dogs were not cute little fluffy pets. All right, I've talked to you guys about how we got a dog right before Christmas, and I showed a picture of it. You all went, oh, it's so cute, right? And I had a little moment of pride because my beagle was cute and all this kind of stuff and uh, loved it. And that's how we think of dogs today. In Paul's day, dogs weren't like that. Uh, You didn't want to bring a dog into your home. Dogs were uh, pack animals that wandered the streets and they scavenged off of dead bodies or dead animals or things like that. They were nasty little creatures. Well, the reason that Paul uses this term here is because uh, Jews would often call the Gentiles dogs. It was interesting. They, they had this saying. They said, if you find a dead cow or a dead goat in the field, you know who can eat it? You can't eat it. If you're a Jew, you can't eat it. You know who can eat it? Dogs and Gentiles. That's how they viewed those that were outside. All right, Paul flips that around and says, no, really the dogs are those who are saying you can only earn acceptance to God through the law. He says, watch out for them. Watch out. 
for those evil workers. People who say that you can earn your way to God through good works, they're really evil workers. They're twisting things around. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. He uses the term here for circumcision and he turns it around and he says, no, what really they're doing, they're just in this external sort of religious ritual. They're mutilating their flesh saying that this is how you know you have peace with God. And he says, it's just the opposite. They're leading you down the wrong path. He says the true circumcision, we are the true circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, to put confidence in the flesh is to say, because of what I look like and do and say on the outside, I have peace with God. Paul says external rituals will never give you peace with God or acceptance with God. And if I walked in here this morning and I was wearing a long white robe, and I started calling myself Gandalf, Does that make me a wizard? No, of course not, right? If I wore a, a black robe and carried a sword, am I necessarily a ninja? No, I'd like to think that I was, but just wearing the costume doesn't do that. Uh, my two-year-old son sometimes will put on this little costume that we have at our house. We got it when our oldest daughter was little. Uh, We have a little doctor kid and along with that play doctor set is a little lab coat, a white lab coat, and he'll put it on and we'll call him Dr. Samuel, right? And he'll walk around and uh, he's got the little tool. There's actually a stethoscope that goes with it. Now imagine that tonight you start having appendix pains. You go to the emergency room and in walks Dr. Samuel, right? With his lab coat and his stethoscope. Says, I'm going to check you out, right? You're going to feel a little uncomfortable with that, right? He hasn't gone to medical school. He hasn't taken any tests. Just putting on a lab coat does not a doctor make. This is Paul's point. The Jews were convinced that circumcision in and of itself and keeping the law in and of itself brought us favor with God. And what Paul says is that was never, ever the case, ever. Even the righteous law keeper under the old covenant was supposed to look forward and recognize, you know, all of this stuff, it's not enough. It's not enough. I need something else. I need the grace of God to merit me favor before God. I need him to do it. I can't. And so what Paul says in this passage essentially is this, that self-righteousness will always fall short of God's standards. It will always fall short of God's standards. No matter what you do, No matter what you say, no matter what your pedigree is, it's not good enough to earn you favor before God. And Paul, in fact, goes on and he says, look, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right, so he lists out, he says, look, you think that you've got a reason to be proud of the stuff you do and it brings you favor before God. He says, look, I've got more. And he starts with his background and his heritage, circumcised the eighth day. That was the law. If you were a Jewish baby, you were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's Leviticus 12. He says, I'm of the nation of Israel. In other words, guys, my parents are both Jews of the nation of Israel. All right, I didn't become a Jew later, I was born one of the tribe of Benjamin. It's a big deal, right? You know uh, what was sitting inside the land of Benjamin? The temple. You know who else was from the tribe of Benjamin? Was Saul, King Saul, the very first king of Israel. In fact, Paul, we know that his original name is Saul, probably named after King Saul. 
He says, look, I'm from one of the premier tribes in Israel. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning even though my parents lived not in uh, Jerusalem, they spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. They kept the law. They spoke Hebrew. They circumcised me. In other words, Paul says, I was born a good church kid. I went to church my whole life. I did all the right things. Even when I was a baby, my mom and dad were taking me to the temple. That's true of some of you guys, right? You were in church before you were two weeks old. That's true of my kids. And Paul says, I've got this pedigree and this background that is absolutely impeccable. And his temptation was to say, look at that. That merits me favor before God. God loves me more than you. I had a friend in high school uh, who was a distant relative of the Oshman's Sporting Goods family. Her last name was Oshman. Now, again, some of y'all may not know that Sporting Goods chain because they've been out of business for a few years, but they had 200, 300 stores all over the country, huge Sporting Goods chain, and there were couple in our area. There was one in the mall and she would sometimes walk in and if she was getting bad service, uh, she would just say, hey, by the way, do you know who I am? And she would show them her Oshman family discount card and watch them jump to attention. It's her pedigree. I'm born an Oshman. Paul says, I am born a Jewish man of Jewish parents who kept the law. Think about that. And then think about what's your pedigree, your background that you take pride in. Maybe it is that from the time you were little, you've been going to church. You never, you never got in trouble. You were never one of those kids that was really into drinking or sex or partying or whatever it is. Your pedigree is impeccable. And so you look at that and you you see other people and you say, man, that person struggles with that? That person came from the wrong part of town. That person's parents are kind of nuts. I've got a pedigree. And Paul even goes on and says, it's not just my background, it's also my works. As to the law of Pharisee. Now we're used to thinking of Pharisees in negative terms, but actually in the first century, Pharisees were like the religious leaders of their day. They were the pastors. They were the ones that kept the law. In fact, the Pharisees had codified the law to 613 commands and they kept it perfectly. Now, the reason they could do that was because they didn't have anything else going on, right? They, they were usually wealthy. They spent all of their time talking about the law, thinking about it, trying to decide what's the best way to keep it. That was Paul. He says, I'm a Pharisee as to the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, before Paul became a Christian, he was so convinced that those who followed Jesus were blasphemers that he put Christians to death. He loved his God so much that he was willing to kill out of zeal for his God. Persecutor of the church, under the law, blameless. In other words, nobody could look at Paul and say, you're a lawbreaker. I'm blameless. I did it all. That's my pedigree. I sat down and, and, you know, this is going to be a weird moment for me, but I thought, you know, if I were to list out, okay, what are the things that I'm proud of? What's my pedigree like Paul does? Well, I was born to Christian parents. I was born in the United States of America, in Texas, of all places, all right? From the time I was a young kid, my parents taught me about Jesus. I went to church all my life at a Bible church. You're impressed, I can tell. Um, I used to lead worship at church. I went to seminary. I'm a pastor. 
I'm an author. I read the Bible. I pray. I give money to my church. Sometimes I even, I even go to the nursing home and I take care of the people there. I'm on the board for Christian organizations. Now you see, I've got a pedigree. You've got one too. You've got one too, I guarantee you. There's things that you do, things that you say, things that you're involved with that you say, yeah, I'm proud of that. Maybe that makes me a notch above. You may be in the other boat where you say, yeah, there's stuff that I've done that I'm not proud of. And so now what you do is you spend your time and your energy chasing after God's approval to earn that pedigree. Paul says, look, if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh, it's me. And it's not that Paul is saying these things were bad or evil. It's that he's saying, compared to knowing Jesus Christ, uh, they don't matter because they will not earn me acceptance before God. I cannot take confidence in those things because they won't provide you favor before God. Your self-righteousness will never, ever, ever do that. It will always fall short, no matter how much of a pedigree you have. And then he goes on and he says this, but Christ's righteousness meets God's standards. Christ's righteousness meets God's standards. Look at verse seven. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And we'll stop there for just a moment. In other words, Paul says this pedigree, I used to, he was like, if I would add up my assets and my liabilities, right? My good stuff and my bad stuff. Paul said, I would take all this stuff, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, born to Jewish parents, blah, blah, blah. And I'd add all that up in the gain column. And over here in the lost column, I might add other things, right? I sinned here. I did this here. I wasn't a part of this group. Paul says, here's my uh, tally. And he says, now what I got to do is I got to take all this stuff I would put in the gain column. And you know what I do? In light of knowing Jesus Christ, I move it over to the lost column. And the reason is this, because knowing Jesus Christ so surpasses all of that, that I'm tempted at times to look at all this gain stuff that I thought was great. And I'm tempted to trust in it rather than in Jesus. And it leads me from a true understanding of who I am in Jesus Christ, that I'm forgiven and accepted. So I need to move that over to the lost column. I look look at it this way. There may be places in this world where having a degree from that other university in Austin would be an asset, right? I know, it's hard to believe, but there may be little corners of the world, terrible places filled with wicked people where a degree like that might merit you gain. But if you move to this town, or if you want to get a a real job somewhere, uh, (laughs) you may have to move that over to the lost column, right? So you come into this town with your degree that you think is awesome, and guess what? You move it over to the lost column. And that's what Paul is saying. Things that I thought were gain before I knew Jesus Christ, I move it over to this lost column. And all that stuff from my past, and even everything that I could count as merit now, I moved to that lost column. Remember, even after he becomes a Christian, Paul's still a pretty big deal. He's an apostle who has planted churches and led churches. He preaches the gospel. He's educated. He's a Roman citizen. He says, I continue to count all that stuff in law as loss. Why? In view of the surpassing value of this, of knowing Jesus Christ. And what Paul is getting at is this, that on a day-to-day basis, I have to remember 
that as I stand before God, there's only one thing that's going to matter in my gain column, and that is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's not only true at the moment that I believe in him so I can go to heaven. That is true all of my life. Every day as you serve Jesus Christ, it's not that your works are bad. And it's not that as a Christian you ought to say, well, then I'm just going to go sin like crazy. It's this. It's a difference of motivation and empowerment. And what Paul is saying is this, is that the motivation for your works is very different. I'm not going around trying to earn God's favor and make God love me by what I do. Instead, I know that God loves me and has accepted me in Jesus Christ. And because of that, the spirit of God lives in me because my sins are forgiven. And now the spirit of God can live in my heart and my life. And so when I serve God, when I love others, when I preach the gospel, I'm doing that in response to the acceptance God has given me. I do that from a settled assurance that I am accepted. And so those works never put me on a higher plane than anybody else. All they are is a response to the fact that I, a wicked sinner, have been forgiven a debt that I can never pay. And so with the rest of my life, I'm going to let the Spirit of God move through me to bring others to know Jesus, to reflect the glory and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I count all of that loss in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. In fact, here in verse 8, he says, I count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This word in the Greek, it's the word scubula, right? And it is a word for human excrement. If I said the English equivalent, some of you would leave, It's a bad word. And Paul says, that is how I count all of this stuff in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. It doesn't add up to anything of real value compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll trade it all in in a heartbeat to be found in him with his righteousness. The biblical concept of righteousness is that I stand before God and all my obligations are met. He declares me righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. He doesn't declare me righteous on the basis of what I've done. The basis of what I've done, I'm declared condemned. He declares me righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. And Paul says, I'll trade in all this stuff to get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you think about Jesus' parable of the hidden pearl, Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story about a guy, he's working in a field and he happens to dig a hole and he finds a pearl buried under the ground and that pearl is worth millions of dollars. And so what does this guy do? He says, all right, good find. He buries it. And he leaves and he takes everything he's got, all of his money, all of his resources, and he pools it together and he comes and he buys that field because he knows what's buried inside is worth much more than all the other stuff. And that's what Paul is essentially saying here, is that all of this other stuff, man, I can let it go. And I come before Jesus Christ with nothing really of value in my hands. And he gives me something of infinite value in return just by believing in him. He gives me acceptance before God, eternal life, the knowledge that he loves me. In Jesus Christ, we have righteousness, alone in Jesus Christ. And again, that means that the response to him is where works come into play. They do not merit us any favor before God. They never did, they never will. 
but the Spirit of God now can work in your heart and life to allow you to represent him. Romans chapter 8. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, Paul's saying that now, because I've trusted Jesus Christ and he's forgiven me of sin, I now stand as a clean vessel before God and his spirit really lives in me. And what Romans 8 says is the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so you're empowered to do what the law could never do. The law could never empower you to do God's will because it provided a list of commands without any way to fulfill them. But now if you've believed in Jesus, the spirit moves in and empowers you to do God's will, not so you can earn your way to life but so you can reflect the life you've been given. Question is, what are the pedigrees that you're trying to pile up? And why? Are you hoping to trade in all this stuff to God and say, look, look what I did. I mean, I read my Bible five days a week for 30 years. I was an officer in the biggest Christian organization on the planet. God, I I didn't do what other people do. I stayed away from drugs and sex and pornography and lust and anger and all these. I stayed away from that stuff. I did my best. God, I went to church. I led a Bible study. You pile all this stuff up and you put it into a big old wheelbarrow. You say, here you go, God. You know what he looks for? He looks for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you found in him? Uh, I'll admit to you that on occasion I have watched Little House on the Prairie. Uh, I have two uh, daughters and we have the whole set on DVD. In fact, the DVD set actually comes in a container that looks like a covered wagon, right? So you can watch and you can roll the wagon around. And so uh, we love this thing. And uh, there's one episode we watched not too long ago in which Laura and a friend are, uh, they're, they're, they're down in a creek bed and they start to notice down in this creek bed little flecks of something shiny. Looks like gold. And their parents are in some financial distress and so Laura and her friend begin to, uh, they steal a screen door from the Olsons uh, and they begin to pan it out and get this stuff out from the creek bed and they put it into a big wheelbarrow. And they they build it up for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then they finally get their haul and they take it to the banker. And you know where this is going. The banker says, got bad news for you. This isn't gold. It's fool's gold. You guys ever seen fool's gold? Iron pyrite. This is just a little brick of it that for some reason I have in my office. Um, All right. This is what it looks like. All right, now, if you see that lying at the bottom of a creek bed and you see a bunch of it, you might mistake this for gold, but it's absolutely worthless. It won't buy you anything. I don't know that it makes anything significant or important. It's just shiny. That's what Paul says about the righteousness found in the law, the righteousness found in our works. It doesn't earn you anything. In fact, you've got to put it in the loss column compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the question is this, where is your 
favor before God found? How do you know you're a part of God's in crowd, so to speak, approved by God? Maybe that you're here and you never have trusted in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you of your sins and to provide you a relationship with God and eternal life. And the message for you would be that there is no way to have that apart from belief in what Jesus has done, that he died for your sins. He took the penalty that you and I deserve and he rose again. So you and I can have life. Maybe this morning God is calling you to believe that. And if you do, The application is this, on an ongoing basis, how do you discern whether God approves of you? How do you discern whether you're one of his people? It is not, it is not based on what you do for him. It is based on what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. You bring nothing to that equation. You don't bring anything more to that equation now than you did on the day you trusted Jesus. It's not as if you suddenly begin to be more worthy of salvation now than you were 10 years ago. Instead, the things that you do are a response to God's grace, to proclaim his mercies to the world around you. And they're the process of God making you more like Jesus Christ for his glory. And so what we need to do, each of us then, is look at the stuff we're doing and ask yourself, why am I doing it? It may even be that you need to scale some activities or some things back and begin to say, what I want to do is first of all know and stand in the righteousness of God. And then I want to go before God and ask God, how would you have me to serve you and serve those around me in response to what Jesus has done? If you're going around chasing God's favor, You're never going to catch it by what you do, ever. And so this may require a realigning of priorities in your life. Say, God, I want to stand in Jesus Christ's righteousness alone rather than trying to find my own righteousness that'll never work. So quickly, quick application, jot down all those things this week. Jot down your pedigree. Take a piece of paper and jot down, here are the things that I tend to think earn me favor with God. And then ask yourself, am I doing these things because I want to earn merit? Or am I doing these things as a response to God's grace? And I either need to change my motivation or I may need to change my activities. And some of us for a while may need to say, I'm going to just know God before I begin to do for God. If you've gotten to that place in your life where you're trying to earn his favor. And remember that he accepted you and me on the basis of what Jesus has done. We're going to close in a song, and as we do, I want us to reflect on that. How can I practically, how can I practically find my righteousness in Jesus Christ alone? God, we confess that in Christ alone we find our hope. He is our light, our strength, our song. He is our righteousness before you. And God, forgive us because we get mixed up and we tend to draw boundaries and lines based upon the things that we do or say or think. And we believe that those merit us favor before you when in fact uh, they don't. So forgive us. God, we pray that we would stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we would rest in that, know know that you have accepted us because of what he has done. And allow us then to proclaim that message to the world because of how much your spirit has allowed us to love you. 
We thank you, God, and we pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week.